Hello and welcome to our weekly podcast from Faith Point Church, Auckland, New Zealand. We hope you will encounter God afresh in this week's teaching segment. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to hear more, then you can visit us at www.faithpoint.org.nz. And now for today's message. Thank you. Okay. The Bible is a book of fairy tales written by men, and evolution is a fact. Probably not the first words you'd expect to hear out of my mouth this morning, and neither of those statements are true, by the way, but if you'd been talking to somebody about Jesus yesterday, and they'd said those things to you, what would you have done? Maybe they'd ask you about dinosaurs, you know, how do you fit dinosaurs into the Bible, or uh, what about the fossils, or where did all the races come from? Or it might have been carbon dating. How about carbon dating? Or it could have been something to do with Noah's Ark. How did Noah get all those animals on the Ark? And where did all the water go after the flood? And then there's probably the the question we get asked the most as Christians. If God is a God of love, why does he allow bad things to happen? So you've heard questions like that? Good, because that means you've been talking to people about Jesus. Now, it's important that you understand what these questions are. If you look at them closely, they're actually challenges to the book of Genesis. And they're also uh, intended to be conversation stoppers. The person who's asking these questions often doesn't expect you to be able to give them an answer. Uh, They're kind of hoping that you'll give up and go and talk about something else. Or maybe they might even get you, uh, they might even be able to get you to start doubting your faith. You see, most skeptics in this country have enough of an understanding of what the Bible says to, to, to know what it teaches. And the underlying implication of these questions is very clear. If you can't trust the first book of the Bible, why would they believe anything that it says about Jesus? Now, as you've heard, my name's Mark James. Uh, I actually have an honours degree in organic chemistry from Victoria University of Wellington. But I like to call myself uh, a lapsed, long-age evolutionary atheist. (laughs) I now work full-time as an events coordinator and speaker for Creation Ministries International. If you told me 20 years ago that I'd be doing what I'm doing today, I probably would have recommended psychiatric intervention. Creation Ministries is is a ministry that's set up to support the church in proclaiming the gospel message by upholding the truth of the word of God, especially where it comes under attack through the use, or should I say, through the misuse of science. We believe that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant word of the creator God of the universe. Our bottom line is that the proper interpretation of scripture is to take it plainly. That That is to take it as the author intended it to be understood. And this is the author inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now, any expert in Hebrew grammar worth his or her salt will tell you that Genesis is written as historical narrative. So I have to assume that the Holy Spirit intended us to read it as historical narrative, which means that the account of origins presented in Genesis is a simple but factual presentation of actual events. God created the universe and everything in it in six ordinary 24-hour Earth days. And then based on the genealogies recorded in later chapters, um, coupled with some recorded dates in history, we can work out that this happened around about 6,000 years ago. Today I'm here to talk to you about science and the Bible. But you know what? There's actually two main things that I want to achieve in my talk today. Firstly, I want to encourage you in your faith. See, I want you to understand that real science, properly interpreted, does not conflict with the biblical account. It actually supports the biblical account of creation. Um, And then, uh, in fact, you know what? Knowing that the Bible can be trusted from the very first verse has had a profound influence on my own faith, and I pray that it's going to be the same for you. And secondly, I want to encourage you in sharing your faith. I want you out there in the world boldly sharing with your friends and your family and your workmates confident in the knowledge that the Bible can be trusted from the very first verse. But before I get started, I want to explain why I believe that the ministry I'm working for is so vitally important. I have a couple of questions for you. Which of these two people do you think is looking more comfortable? (laughs) The guy with the umbrella, right? Okay. Why? Because he's protected. He's, He's covered. He's protected from the rain. 
Now, which of them do you think is more likely to have a successful day? Again, the guy with the umbrella. Why? Because he planned ahead. He's prepared for whatever the day might throw at him, and he's equipped to deal with it. See, we live in a world that is saturated with anti-biblical ideas. To be confident in our own faith, we need to protect ourselves from this deluge. Uh, We need to take every thought captive to obey Christ. And to boldly share our faith, we need to be prepared and equipped with answers to the challenges that the enemy's going to throw at us. In 1 Peter 3.15, we read, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Does this sound like a suggestion? It's not. It's an instruction. We Christians are instructed to be prepared to share our faith. But to do this effectively, uh, you need to be equipped with answers, answers to the questions that unbelievers ask. And this is where Creation Ministries comes in. Uh, We produce books and DVDs and tracts for all levels of understanding, from easy to read and easy to understand through to highly technical. Um, But they're all written by experts in their fields. And what you see on the table at the back there is just a small selection of what we now have. Our number one resource is called Creation Magazine, as Pastor James mentioned. Uh, This goes out now to more than 110 countries around the world. And of course, we're on Facebook and we're on Instagram and we have a website. And all right, I'm very biased. This is an amazing website. And it has a very, really, really easy um, web address to remember. So can I get you to say this for me? It is creation.com. It's actually been scientifically proven that you're now more likely to remember it because you've said it out loud. (laughs) At creation.com, you'll find over 12,000 articles um, written by our scientists and professionals. And a new article is added almost every single day. And every day we get testimonies from people whose lives have been changed because people like you have shared the information on this site. Best of all, the information on creation.com, it's absolutely free. Now, I know what some of you are thinking right now. Oh, no, not another website that I've got to follow. Well, just for you, we've come up with a very simple system that will alert you um, when there's something of particular interest on our site. We have a free email alert service called Infobytes. Now, this is designed to keep you up to date with important breaking news in the creation evolution debate, and it provides links to our website. All you need is an email address. And if you have an email address, I would strongly recommend that you subscribe to Infobytes. We're not going to spam you, and you can always unsubscribe at a later date if you decide that it's not for you. And there's no better time than now. So I'm going to get my lovely assistant, Hans, to come to the front. And Hans is going to pass out sign-up sheets to Infobytes. All you need to do when the sign-up sheet gets to you is jot down your name, your email address, and your contact details in the spaces provided. And when you're done, please pass it on so that everybody gets a chance. And please write clearly because I'm the person who has to put it into our system when I get back to the office. Now, before we talk about some of the science, you need to understand that I've only got time today to look at just a few questions that the skeptics might ask. And with the topics I am going to cover, I can really only scratch the surface, okay? So at the end of each section of my talk, if, there's a t- if it's a topic that interests you in particular or you think it's something that you need to know more about, uh, I'm going to take a few seconds to recommend one or two resources that will help you to go a little bit deeper. And then at the end of my talk, I'll highlight some resources that will cover the topics that I haven't had time to address. So keep an eye out for those. Okay, so let's start talking about some of the science. Who do you think has the most scientific facts, creationists or evolutionists? Who thinks creationists have the most scientific facts? Some hands going up. Who thinks evolutionists have the most scientific facts? Okay, there's some hands going up there as well. Fascinating thing is, both sides of this debate have the same scientific facts. We all look at the same universe. It's the same rocks, the same fossils, the same plants, the same animals. Creationists and evolutionists, we don't disagree about the facts. We disagree about how the facts are interpreted. You see, facts exist in the present. They can be scientifically tested in the present. And these tests can be repeated to verify the results. We call this experimental or operational science. 
And it's responsible for our medicines, for my laptop, for your cell phones, your cars. In fact, all of the technological advances we have today are a result of experimental science. But you see, things like the origin of the universe or the origin of life, these are historical events. They can't be repeated and they can't be tested. So this involves a different kind of science. Again, the scientists look at the facts that exist in the present, but then they, um, in, they interpret the results. They re the results are interpreted to try and work out how the facts came into existence. Now, we call this historical science. And historical science does have, uh, it does play an important role in our understanding of past events, but it has one major limitation. To draw conclusions, the scientists have to make assumptions. And these assumptions are often based on the scientists' beliefs about what happened in the past. So, um, for instance, long-age geologists, they start by assuming that um, the processes we see happening today are what's happened throughout history. But can you see that this automatically rules out the very possibility of a global flood before they even start looking at the evidence? Now, I have to admit, I make assumptions too, okay? I am not immune from this. As a biblical creationist, my starting point for looking at the scientific facts is the creation account in Genesis. Now, please don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that the Bible is a science textbook, okay? It's not. But it is the unchanging word of God who cannot lie, which means it has to be true in everything it teaches. And Jesus himself confirmed this when he prayed for his disciples. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So whenever the Bible touches on matters that have scientific implications, it must be true. Otherwise, the skeptics are right and the Bible can't be trusted. So today we're going to take a look at a few of the more common uh, scientific challenges to biblical authority. And I want to give you some answers that are easy to understand and easy to explain that you can use to show people that the biblical account is correct. So first up, what about geological features? Don't they take millions of years to form? What are you going to do when you get asked a question like this? See, I want you to get excited because you're going to have an opportunity to share the truth of God's word. So what are the facts? Well, without question, we see billions of dead things. We call them fossils buried in rock layers, laid down by water all over the earth. Uh, now, long ages, starting with the assumption that the earth is old, uh, attribute these rock layers to gradual sedimentation over hundreds of millions of years. In this account, the fossils supposedly record the sequence of biological evolution over time. But to a creationist like me, the layers are exactly what we would expect to find as a result of the flood of Noah. And in this case, the fossils record the sequence of burial during the flood. So we have facts and we have two explanations for these facts. All we can do is try to work out which of these explanations gives us the best understanding for what we see. So um, first, we'll take a look at the rocks. All over the world, we see layers like this, often tens, even hundreds of meters thick containing layers of rock stacked one on top of the other, almost like pancakes. And, and these are not just localized features. There are uh, layers like this stretching all the way from the south of England, from the White Cliffs of Dover. So the same layer can be connected all the way to the Middle East. And there are layers forming a for hundreds of thousands of square kilometers across North America. And some of these layers can be traced into Africa. Now, long-age geologists would have us believe that these layers were laid down gradually, either at the bottom of tranquil um, seas or lakes, or as a result of multiple local floods over time. But if that's really the case, why is it that we only ever see evidence for tilting and erosion once the layers are all in place? And first, let's straighten these layers up. Now, this layer I've highlighted at the bottom this layer was supposedly laid down millions of years ago, and then over a long period of time, it was buried and the next layer formed. 
But can you see that there's absolutely no sign of erosion while this process was taking place? You see, the effects of water in particular should have caused channeling and unevenness in the upper surface of one layer while the next layer was being laid down. But apparently every single one of these layers laid there perfectly flat for millions of years while the next layer formed. And during that whole time, there was apparently absolutely no erosion. Then, once all the layers were in place, two things happened. Firstly, uh, the whole formation was tilted. Now, we know that this tilting happened after the layers were in place because if the tilting had happened as the layers were being laid down, some of the upper layers would have been thin at one end and fat at the other. And that's what gravity does, right? And then, only then, did the erosion start. And it was huge. And not just down the red line that you can see that I've put in there. Can you see that the whole front of this cliff face has eroded away? I have to ask, is this a reasonable explanation for what we see? Okay, here's another one for you. Why is it that we only ever find soil on the top layer, but not between the layers lower down? See, soil is made from decomposing plant life. Was there no plant life for millions of years while these layers formed? This actually beggars belief, but um, it's the only explanation if the layers were formed gradually. To make matters worse, we actually find fossilized plant material in the rocks, but there's no soil for these plants to grow in, and there's no soil formed by the decomposition of these plants uh, when they die. Now, these features I've just shown you, as I say, I'm just scratching the surface here. Um, there are many, many more features, but they're exactly what we would expect to find if the layers were formed rapidly by flowing water during the flood. And when you know what to look for, the evidence for the flood is everywhere. This is a picture of, anybody recognize it? The Grand Canyon, has anybody been there? Yes? It's an incredible place. If you ever get a chance to go to the Grand Canyon, grab it. There are hundreds of meters of sedimentary rock layers stacked one on top of the other with no soil formation between the layers and evidence for erosion only from the top layer down. It's, it's amazing. But there's something even more amazing about this part of the world. Scientists will now tell us that at some stage in the past, there was at least another one and a half kilometers of rock standing on top of what's there today. That's above the rim of the canyon. As much as 400,000 cubic kilometers of rock has gone, and it's gone without trace. I have to ask you, what could have caused erosion on such a massive scale? You know, I was talking to an old friend of mine about this, and I asked him this question, and he looked at me and he said, I wonder why the aliens mined all that dirt. <laughs> the flood of Noah was a catastrophic event that inundated every square inch of land on this planet. The very highest mountains were covered to a depth of at least six meters. Now, this is the pre-flood mountains, okay? The Bible doesn't tell us how tall those mountains were. Huge volumes of churned up sediment would have been created. And as this sediment settled, the different particle densities in flowing water would have formed layers rapidly with no soil formation between the layers and, of course, no erosion between the layers. Then as the floodwaters abated and the mountains rose up, as the Bible tells us, um, these layers would have been subjected to enormous erosion, resulting in much of the topography that we see around us today. Now, these sediments would have contained minerals and biological agents and, of course, water, exactly the ingredients required to rapidly cement the particles together to form solid rock. If you want to know how quickly solid rock can form under optimum conditions, you just have to look at concrete. It's a very similar process. How long does it take concrete to go hard? Less than a day? And if you have any doubt at all that all the land we see around us was once covered by water, you only have to look at Mount Everest. The summit of the tallest mountain on Earth is made up of sedimentary rock laid down in water. And right at the top of the mountain, the layers contain fossilized shellfish. Wow. No disrespect to Sir Ed, but the fossils actually, the, the, shell, the clams, the clams actually got there first. <laughs> okay, so the biblical account provides a more coherent explanation for the rocks, but what about the fossils? 
See, fossils are the preserved remains or traces of plants, animals, and other organisms. They are a record of death. But you see, fossilization is actually a very rare occurrence today. Why? Well, we know when something dies, either on land or in water, it doesn't lie there on the ground for thousands or millions of years while it's gradually covered up with sediment, does it? What happens? Scavengers get involved, and they start to pull the carcass to pieces. And then microorganisms get involved, and they continue the process of disintegration till there's very little left. So I have to ask, would this result in the beautifully preserved fossils we find today? No. See, fossilization actually requires rapid burial. Only rapid burial will seal the organism from scavengers and decay so that fossilization can take place. And yet we find some amazing examples of fossils that can only be the result of this type of rapid burial. This is a picture of a female ichthyosaur. Now, it's an extinct sea creature. They were three to six meters long. Uh, amazing things. But um, can anybody tell me how we know it's a female? Was it the long eyelashes? No. <laughs> the little handbag? No. This one I can only use when my wife's not in the room. Was it the credit card? <laughs> we know that this was a female because it was buried and fossilized in the process of giving birth. Now, ladies, I know that labor can take a long time, but it doesn't usually take thousands or millions of years, right? And um, here's another one of a fish fossilized in the process of swallowing its lunch. These are instants in time that have been recorded in the fossil record. And remember the clams that I told you about on the top of Mount Everest? What happens with shellfish when they die usually is that the ligament that holds the shells together, it decays and the shells fall apart, which is why we find half shells on the beach, right? The clams on the top of Mount Everest are actually in the closed position, which means they were buried rapidly. Okay, so now we, need, we know we need rapid burial to start the fossilization process. But surely, surely everybody knows that making a fossil takes millions of years, right? Well, actually, no. Under the right conditions, it can happen very rapidly. This is a picture of a, a fossilized bowler's hat found here in New Zealand, actually. Now, I have to say, bowler's hats and the bowlers who wear them aren't usually millions of years old, right? <laughs> and there are many, many examples of um, this sort of recent rapid fossilization, including teddy bears. Wow. This teddy bear has turned to stone. Are teddy bears millions of years old? No, they're not. So contrary to what we're led to believe, the fossil record does not require slow and gradual processes over long periods of time. And uh, an honest interpretation of the scientific evidence, again, supports the biblical account. All right, now, we don't have to fit long ages uh, into our faith. Real science supports the biblical account. And if you'd like to equip yourself with more answers on this topic, we have a great article on our website called 101 Evidences for a Young Age of the Earth and the Universe. 101, okay? And we also have this amazing book called The Deep Time Deception that will help you to answer questions about fossils, about rocks, about carbon dating, about dinosaurs, and much, much more. All right, so let's move on to another question. Isn't evolution a proven fact? And doesn't that prove the biblical account of creation is wrong? So this is a good question. I'm glad you asked. Now, if evolution is true, I would have to agree, it does prove the biblical account wrong. Why? Well, evolutionists would have us believe that life started out as a single-celled organism and over the course of a long period of time has evolved to produce the huge variety and complexity of life as we know it. This is called biological evolution. But you see, in the biblical account, all the different kinds of life we see today were created fully functioning over six days during the creation week approximately 6,000 years ago. Now, you have to understand that these two accounts are actually mutually exclusive if one of them's true, the other one must be false. According to the evolutionary account, death, disease, and suffering were a part of the process that led to the creation of man. This clearly puts death before Adam. 
But in the biblical account, death only came into the world as a result of Adam's rebellion. So there are major theological problems with the account of evolution. And of course, there's a huge difference in how life as we know it came into existence. So again, we've got facts and we've got two explanations for these facts. So let's see which of these explanations works the best. We're going to take a closer look at biological evolution. According to Wikipedia, that fount of all knowledge, <laughs> biological evolution is the change in the inherited characteristics of biological populations over time. Now we know from experimental science that biological populations change over time. But is this really ever evolution? Um, I want to look at a simple example. According to the Bible, how many dogs did Noah have on the ark? Two? Yeah? We can't be absolutely certain because the Bible doesn't say there were two Fidos on the ark, okay? But the Bible does tell us that two of every kind came to Noah to be kept alive. So two dogs is a reasonable assumption. Okay, so how many different breeds of dog do we have today? There are hundreds of them, right? So changes in the inherited characteristics of dogs must have happened even in the biblical account. In fact, this type of change is essential to an understanding of biblical creation. So what's going on here? All right, well, the inherited char characteristics of biological populations are stored and passed on from organism to organism by molecules in the cell called DNA. I'm sure you've heard of DNA? Our genes, which play an important role in defining our characteristics, are a part of our DNA. Now, in this example I'm going to show you, which is actually taken from Creation magazine, we're going to assume that hair length in dogs is governed by one pair of genes in the dog's DNA. Now, you can't usually see these genes on the front of the dog, okay? But for today's example, you can see that these two dogs have one gene for short hair and one fluffy gene for long hair. Now, when these dogs reproduce, the dog's DNA is copied, but each parent can only pass on one of these genes. So we can end up with offspring that's short-haired, with two short-haired genes, medium-haired, like the parents, or long-haired, with two long-haired genes. <laughs> okay, so now let's see what happens when we put these dogs into a cold environment. Can you see that the short and medium-haired dogs, they don't like the cold, so they're less likely to, um, to be successful and pass on their genes. The long-haired dogs, however, they thrive and they do pass on their genes. But they can only pass on the gene for long hair. So we end up with a population of dogs all with long hair. This is an example of what's called natural selection. You've probably heard that term as well. Sometimes called survival of the fittest. The dogs best suited to their environment have survived to reproduce and pass on their genes. But what would happen now if the environment warmed up again? Can you see what we've done here? In just two generations, we've actually eliminated the gene for short hair. And this is why the Wikipedia definition is actually very deceptive. <laughs> Changes in the inherited characteristics of biological populations can and do happen over time, but only within kinds of organisms. These dogs look very different to the original pair, but they're still dogs. See, nothing new has been created, and the changes that are observed have actually involved a loss of characteristics. Biological evolution has to explain the arrival of new characteristics. And to get new characteristics, there needs to be change to the DNA. Now, changes to DNA are called mutations. Again, another term you've probably heard. Mutations are random copying errors that happen as the DNA is copied during reproduction. But we now know that DNA is the biological equivalent of a highly sophisticated software system. In fact, Bill Gates called it the most sophisticated software system known to man. And new characteristics require new coherent information to be added to this software. <coughs> This is a major problem for evolution. According to the theory, life started out as a single-celled organism, uh, which then has evolved over time to produce human beings. A single-celled organism has DNA, DNA containing around about a million, you know what, the easiest way to describe them is to call them chemical letters. Human DNA has um, DNA containing 
3,000 million chemical letters, which means random copying errors have to account for the addition of some 2,999 million chemical letters containing the information that codes for bone cells. I mean, single-celled organisms don't have bones, right? Um, muscle cells, nerve cells, blood cells, heart, kidney, liver. Do random mutations happen? Absolutely. Do they add information to DNA? No. By a wide margin, we know that mutations actually destroy information in DNA. Uh, the stark reality is that no random mutation has ever been found that adds the complex coded information to add brand new features to an existing organism. Now, ev evolutionists, they'll actually dispute this and they'll point to what they call beneficial mutations in support of their theory. But what we're finding, even with the beneficial mutations, they actually result from a loss of information. Now, I'm going to give you a very silly example. I want you to imagine that I was born with a mutation that meant that I had no legs. Would we consider that to be an evolutionary advance? No, I've lost the information for legs. But what if we lived in a world where athlete's foot was a fatal disease? Can you see that I've got no legs, which means that I've got no feet, no toes, I can't catch athlete's foot. Whereas you lot, with all those horrible legs and feet of yours, would be susceptible to the disease. Can you see how a loss of information can actually be a benefit in certain situations? But once the athlete's foot's gone and it's time to head off to morning tea, who's going to get there last? Me, because I've got no legs. Okay, so what does this tell us about our origins? Well, according to the theory of evolution, random mutations have caused genetic information to increase over time, uh, starting in the distant past with the arrival of the first life form and culminating in life as we know it today. And evolution also predicts that we should see a continuation of this increase into the future. I mean, why would it have stopped just when we start looking at it? But uh, so the general trend should be something like this. And please, I'm just showing you a general trend here. Uh, it's not exactly how it would have happened. But if we take a closer look at what's actually happening today, what scientists observe is a relatively rapid loss of genetic information, exactly the opposite of what we would expect to find if evolution were true. Now, this is not good news for life on this planet, and it's certainly not good news for the human race. As many as 100 to 300 extra mutations are added to every new individual at conception, and these mutations accumulate over time. At this rate, we are rapidly heading for extinction. Now, let's take what's observed in experimental science and let's go back into history. If we do that, what we see is increasing genetic complexity. With each generation having fewer mutations, you get more genetic complexity. Um, your parents' DNA has fewer mutations than your DNA. Compared to your parents, I'm sad to tell you, it's, you're all mutants. <laughs> and when I say mutants, think Quasimodo, okay, not X-Men. You are not becoming superheroes, all right? And your parents' DNA has fewer mutations than your DNA. And this reduction in mutations stretches back into history. Go back the right number of generations, and there's the distinct possibility of arriving at a point where DNA carries no mutations. How would you describe DNA with no mutations? Genesis 1.31 tells us that at the end of the creation week, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. In other words, everything was created perfect. The Bible also tells us that since the fall, the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. And you know what? In the verse before this, we're actually told that creation will be liberated from its bondage to decay, which means that since the fall, everything has been, including DNA, has been decaying, which is exactly what scientists see happening. An honest interpretation of what scientists know about DNA actually confirms the biblical account of creation and the fall. Again, real science supports the biblical account. Now, if this is an area where you think you could be better equipped, uh, this book, Evolution's Achilles Heels, is for you. In this book, nine PhD scientists 
um, who got their, their degrees from secular universities uh, show how the major flaws in evolutionary thinking actually point to the truth of the Bible. And this is also available as a DVD if you don't like reading. We Christians, we don't have to avoid talking about science. We can have confidence in the Bible as the inerrant word of God. It is true in everything it teaches from the very first verse. It is the history book of the universe. And we should be out there proclaiming this fact in the world. Sadly, um, this is a very rare occurrence today. Too often as a ministry, we have people come up to us and say, oh, isn't creation just a side issue? Aren't we Christians just to reach out to the lost, to evangelize and preach the gospel? You know what? To most unbelievers, this is not a side issue. This is the very reason that they don't believe. Uh, but more than that, the Genesis account of creation is absolutely foundational to the gospel message we preach. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul refers to Genesis, and he reminds us that death was a result of Adam's rebellion. And then he highlights the gospel connection. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Now, please don't get me wrong here. I am not saying that what we believe about origins is a salvation issue. Okay, We are saved by grace through faith. But how we interpret Genesis is central to our understanding of why we need to be saved in the first place. You see, right back at the beginning of Genesis, we read of a perfect creation. God and man were in perfect relationship with one another. There was no disease, no suffering, and no death. But then Adam rebelled. And that act of rebellion brought immediate separation between man and God. And it brought disease, suffering, and death into the world. But thank God he loves us so much that he came in human form and he paid the price for our sin, which is death. Why? Because right back at the beginning, Adam brought death into the world. Jesus gave his life on the cross to the pay the price that we cannot pay. But then we read he rose again, which proves that Jesus is the Son of God. And that gives every believer a hope for the future. But if we leave it at that, then nothing happens. Only when we place our confidence and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ can we experience what the Bible calls the new birth. And if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come, which means there is nothing, nothing in your past that the cross cannot atone for. It's not about doing things to win God's favor. It's about that step of faith, believing in who Jesus is. And this new birth is when God gives us the gift of his Holy Spirit, who restores relationship once again. So we now have the incredible privilege of God's Holy Spirit living in our hearts, walking with us daily. And having the Holy Spirit in our lives guarantees our inheritance for all eternity. Can you see that this is an incredible redemption that God has planned for us? When we call into question the reliability of the facts of Genesis, we're effectively taking away the foundation of the whole gospel message. This can and often does become a salvation issue when we share the gospel with unbelievers. And Jesus himself warns us of the consequences. In the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, Abraham tells the rich man, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. We are living in a society that swallowed whole the lie of evolution and millions of years. Our schools, our universities, the media, and sadly, even many of our Christian churches are effectively teaching people that Moses can't be trusted. And if Moses can't be trusted, how can we trust the rest of the Bible? Is it any wonder that so many people are rejecting the gospel? Do you guys understand that there's a battle going on for the souls of your friends and family? Yes. There's a war raging. And these issues, evolution and millions of years, are a huge intellectual barrier that stop people from believing that the Bible might even be remotely true. Do you ever get the feeling that some of your friends or family might think you're a little bit crazy? Wouldn't it be great to show them that you're not? 
to show them that in the beginning God really did create the heavens and the earth and that the glory of his creation is plain for all to see so that they, like us, are without excuse and then to see them come to Christ. As I said earlier, if you're going to share the gospel with confidence, you'll need to have tools. You'll need to have answers. You'll need to have weapons in order to demolish the arguments that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. Of all the resources we've got, probably the best one I can equip you with is Creation Magazine. Does anybody here get this magazine? So I know Pastor James said he had it in the past. Yes? Thank you. You're my sales rep. Okay, you go around and tell everybody else how amazing this thing is. Um, it is the most read publication of its kind in the world today. It comes out quarterly, so every three months there's a new injection of fresh inf- uh, Bible-affirming information into your house. And it can be a great gift as well for believers and unbelievers. Uh, it has 56 pages, and there's no, page, no paid advertising. I-, I want you to imagine what would happen to a copy of Woman's Day if you took all the paid advertising out of it. <laughs> wouldn't be a lot left, right? And what's left in here is life-changing information. Not just for you. It will encourage your faith. But this can be life-changing information for those that you're trying to reach with the gospel. Uh, it's a resource like no other of its kind in the world today. Uh, now, we've got a little incentive for you if you decide to get this great information into your home today. Uh, if you subscribe for a, a one-year subscription, we'll, give, we'll start by giving you a back issue for free. So you get five issues for the, start, uh, for the cost of four, and you can start reading straight away. And if you get a three-year subscription, we'll give you the back issue plus two free DVDs, including one called Rapid Rocks, where you'll see that the evidence for the flood is overwhelming, from the smallest rock through to the largest landscape. And another one called Fallout, which shows that young people who are equipped with answers retain their faith, even at school, at university, even after they leave home. Uh, And if you already get the magazine, you can take advantage of these offers by extending your subscription today. Plus, your subscription now includes uh, a digital version. Uh, This is good for five devices, so your aunts, your uncles, your nieces, your nephews, your grandchildren can all all have a copy of their own. This is six copies for the cost of one. Okay, to avoid a bottleneck at the resources table, obviously we have to get names and addresses. We're going to circulate sign-up sheets now. All you have to do when the sign-up sheet gets to you is fill your contact details in the spaces provided, and then please tick the box or boxes to indicate which of the options you've chosen, and tear off the coupon on the right and take it to the resources table afterwards to make payment and receive your free gift. And if you're thinking of gifting a subscription, please make that clear. It can be anonymous but we do like to send a letter just letting them know why they're suddenly getting a new magazine. The heart of our ministry is this, is that this, sorry, I'll get Hans to start handing those out. The heart of our ministry is that this magazine would make a big difference in this church and in this community. And we do have an FPOS machine as well, so we make things easy. Now, while those are going round, I want to look at another couple of questions very quickly. Uh, questions that are actually hot topics at the moment. How do we explain viruses like COVID-19 from a biblical perspective? So before I get into this, um, I want, what, what can you tell me about this guy? He's a bull, right? He's in a field. He's where he's supposed to be. There will be fences to keep him there. As long as we don't go and poke him with a stick, he's not going to cause us any problems. But what if we put him in here? See, now we've got a problem, right? Okay, so how do we explain killer viruses? Well, you you might not know this, but most viruses are actually beneficial. Viruses are a part of God's very good creation. Um, In your body, there are actually more bacterial cells than there are human cells. If you want to lose weight, kick the bacteria out. And in your gut, there are more viral cells or viruses than there are bacterial cells. Uh, And uh, you know what? One scientist said, if we got rid of all the viruses that exist, then life would be wonderful for about 24 hours, and then we'd all die. But viruses that produce disease, they seem to be designed to do what they do. So where did they come from? Well, viruses are designed to do a particular job in a particular organism. There are checks and balances in place within that organism to keep these viruses under control. 
But you see, if the checks and balances fail, a beneficial virus might become dangerous. It might mutate and start to cause disease. It might even jump species. See, now it's more dangerous because it's where it's not supposed to be. And, and that's very much like the bull in the china shop. And scientists tell us that they think that COVID-19 actually came from bats. So what does the future hold? Well, with COVID-19, we don't really know. Um, there are these uh, vaccines coming, which should help. Um, but we do have previous experience. The, the, um, for instance, the in 1917, the Spanish flu appeared. Now, the Spanish flu killed up to 50 million people. Uh, it was very bad in the first few years, much worse than COVID-19. Uh, but, but we found out, we found out since that it was actually picking up on average 14 mutations per year. And it very quickly weakened. And over the course of 40 years, it mutated itself to extinction. Fascinating thing is that a few labs kept samples of it. And uh, a lab in Moscow accidentally released the Spanish flu back into the environment. And it was around for about another 33 years before it finally um, mutated itself to extinction. When it went extinct, we now know that 10% of its genome was um, mutated. So the summary here is viruses are a part of God's very good creation. Most play beneficial roles, but in a sin-cursed world, they can also cause disease, uh, suffering, and death. And one more for you. Where did all the races come from? Now, this is a big, big issue in the world today. I've got a question for you, though. How many races are there? Actually, you know, you know what? Here's a better idea. How many skin colors are there? Hmm? How many different skin colors? Okay, if you had to describe me to the police, say you saw me going through somebody, I mean, I took a handful of crunchy bars, <laughs> raced out through the door as fast as I can, which isn't very fast nowadays, uh, and you called the police, how would you describe me? I'm old, yes, I'm bald, yes, and I'm white. white. Okay, thank you. A couple of times people have called out pasty. <laughs> <laughs> But am I really white? You know what? Um, when the police catch me, I'm not fast, and the police, the New Zealand police, they always get their man. They're going to take a mugshot of me, right? Even for stealing crunchy bars. They're going to stand me in front of a white screen to take a photo. Is my face going to disappear into that screen? No, it's not. Why? Because I have a pigment in my skin. It's called melanin, and it's dark brown. Um, every person on this planet has that same pigment. Some have more of that pigment. Some people, sadly like me, have a little bit less. Everyone on the planet, as I said, has the same pigment. How many skin colors are there? Just one. We are all different shades of the same color. Now, if you'd been subscribing to Creation Magazine, you would have seen this picture. Two-tone twins. These, these gorgeous girls have the same biological mother and father. Here they are as a family. Can you see that the parents are actually mid-brown? And you know what? This is not an isolated case. There are many thousands of examples from around the world of, of, of twins with completely different skin tones. In fact, my atheist brother, my atheist brother who I am working on, he actually pointed out that I grew up with two girls. One was very dark, one was very pale, and they were twins. How does this happen? Actually, you know what? The better uh, question is, why are we so surprised? If we read the Bible as it is plainly written, how many, we're all descended from Adam and Eve. How many races are there? Just one. It's called the human race. Okay, that's it for the science today. Um, but as I said, there are so many more challenges that people face. And after a talk like this, people will often come up and say, you know what, if I'm going to get something to go with the magazine, what would you recommend? Probably the best follow-up is this book called The Creation Answers Book. This has answers to over 60 of the most asked questions on creation, evolution, and the Bible. I'm very biased again, but I think that this book should be in every Christian home. Uh, now, would anybody like to get this book for free? <laughs> You're not going to like me. <laughs> Buy the intro pack.
You get Refuting Evolution, the best-selling creation book of all time, apparently, apart from the Bible. Uh, you get Origins in the Modern World and Why It Matters, and you, we throw in the Answers book free of charge as a bonus. Um, we've also got books that go a little deeper, looking at the science, the history, and the theology of Genesis and how it all fits together. Uh, and this book um, is written by a New Zealander, by the way, by the name of Jonathan Safety, an amazing man. Uh, and we've also produced this as a 12-DVD teaching series uh, with downloadable study guides. This is great for your small groups in particular. We've got some great children's books, um, dinosaur books, Noah's Ark books, and the real Noah's Ark, not those silly bathtub arcs that you see in most kids' books. What does the Bible say? Train up a child in the way they should go, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. And along those lines, we've also got books for students, including this one called The Creation Survival Guide, which is actually designed to help our youth navigate the school and university years and come out the other end with their faith intact. This is a testimony from our Facebook page. I'm a year 12 student and I've been reading creation stuff for years. It's a lot of fun and I've actually found that I'm acing year 12 biology, specifically evolution, because I seem to know more about it than my teachers. You know, one of the hardest things to hear as a CMI speaker is when, after a meeting like this, um, good Christian parents come up to tell us that they found out too late that their children were losing their faith because of what they were being taught at school. Don't be fooled. Satan wants your children. And he wants your grandchildren. And if he can use our schools to get them, he'll use our schools. And don't forget the website. And the web address is? Creation.com. See? Science works. Now, uh, by the way, if you know of another church or a school that you think might like to hear this message, please come and see us afterwards because we'd like to know it. Um, as I said earlier, being prepared is an instruction, not a suggestion. So I want to finish with a challenge for you. Are you prepared to protect yourself from the deluge of anti-biblical ideas that the enemy will throw at you? Are you willing to take every thought captive to obey Christ? And are you ready to equip yourselves with answers to the questions that unbelievers ask so you can reach your friends and your workmates and your culture with the truth of the gospel message? And are you prepared to provide that same protection for your and equipping for your family, for your children and your grandchildren? See, there are answers to the questions that unbelievers ask. This is an amazing time to be a Christian, and we need to make the most of it. So that's all I have time for. If you've got any more questions for us, please come and see us at the resources table afterwards. Thank you very much.